0: And we'll get into God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you um, that we serve you, King of kings and Lord of lords. The earth belongs to you. All of the nations are in the palm of your hand. And uh, we trust you, Jesus, uh, for our salvation, for our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to grow, men and women, as people of faith, Lord, that we would grow in our heart of faith, that we would grow with uh, the eyes of faith and I pray, God, that as we spent some time in your word this morning, that your spirit would just uh, speak to us. And so, Lord, we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. Okay, so second half of Luke chapter eight. In the, in the first half, we looked at a bunch, of, a bunch of stories, some accounting of some things that happened with Jesus. We, we read about his ministry team, the men and women that were serving with him. We uh, looked at the parable of the sower last week, and then we looked at uh, Jesus' explanation of that parable to his disciples and then the defining of his new spiritual family as he had a personal encounter with his own family. And I just want to remind you of this because I think it lays the groundwork for where this text goes this morning that that we talked about last week that when Jesus used uh, parables, when he taught crowds and he was teaching them using parables, he wasn't illustrating truths. He was teaching things about the kingdom, but he was doing so in a way to actually hide the truth from the crowds. We, we often go, oh no, he's illustrating truth. No, he was actually hiding truth. That's what he told his disciples so that the crowds would see but not see. They would hear but not hear. And the idea was this, that so that those who actually didn't want to see and didn't want to hear wouldn't be able to truly grasp what he was talking about. And those who were hungry and wanted to learn would come to him, and he would explain to them the secrets of the kingdom. To them, truth would be revealed, and the secrets would be shared. And uh, the Holy Spirit emphasized this in Luke's gospel by telling us the account right after that uh, teaching that Jesus gave his disciples about the family of Jesus coming looking for him, his mother. And his brothers. And Jesus said this My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so he was defining the terms of his spiritual family and what the kingdom is like. Those who belong to the kingdom of God, and this is important for us, hear the word of God and they do it. There's no separation between the hearing and the doing of the word of God. And the thing that connects hearing the word of God and doing it is faith believing the promises of God and then obediently doing what the word of God, what Jesus asked us to do. And so it's interesting, you know, when you think about the 12, I mean, this ragtag crew that we're just starting to get to know in Luke's gospel, it's hard to imagine. I mean, we we have hindsight. We know what happens with them. But if you just took away, uh, you know, all the information that we have about the missionary work that they did and how they went out and preached the gospel and Turn the world upside down. When you, when you look at the gospel accounts in this part of Jesus' story, it's like, seriously? These are the 12 guys that he's chosen to turn the world upside down? Uh, I don't know, Jesus. And they had to learn that, that faith is obedient to the word of God. Faith is obedient to the word of God. And you and I are no different. We're constantly learning this and relearning this and learning to live like this and express that kind of life following Jesus. There's a a saying that you've probably heard if you've kicked around church life very, very long, and it's this, that faith has to be tested before it can be trusted. Faith has to be put to the test so that we know we can trust Jesus and obediently uh, follow him. No, I uh, I finally saw Top Gun. Um, and I, I was thinking this, you know, faith has to be tested. It's kind of like Maverick. He didn't know the limits of that fighter jet until he took it there, right? Mach 10, yeah, right. Um, you know, or it's like, you know, if you're a fitness freak, you don't know the limits of your body till, you, you know, you get on the assault bike or, you know, you're going to a church baseball, softball game, you don't know the limit of how many hot dogs you can eat till... You test your body out. Faith has to be tested like that so that it can be trusted. And our faith is constantly being tested all of the time, you know, by various things that we're going through in our everyday experiences of life. We're being pushed. We're being uh, tested to, to say, will we trust Jesus? Will we trust the word of God? Will faith express itself in obedience? Will we hear the word of God And do it. And I like the accounts that we're about to read here in a moment because the disciples have been taught the secrets of the kingdom, the parable of the sower. And now they're going to watch Jesus be tested. And these are great stories, ones that we're going to read that you're very familiar with. They're power encounters for the Lord Jesus. One with a really dangerous physical situation, another with demonic forces that we haven't seen. Uh, to this point in the gospel accounts. And then we're gonna watch as Jesus faces sickness and death. So let's check this out. We're gonna pick it up in chapter eight and verse 22. It says this, one day he got into a boat with his disciples. He said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the, wave, and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he, even, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Obey him. I love this story, don't you? man, this is like one of my favorite gospel stories. I mean, you know, one day Jesus gets in the boat with his disciples and says, let's go to the other side of the lake. And you know the story, we've just read it. He goes to sleep. And, you know, when we take this account, this story and read it in light of the other gospels, what we actually find out is, is that Jesus had just gone through a really demanding time of ministering to the crowds. In fact, this is, just prior to this, the scripture tells us in other gospel accounts that he was so busy ministering to people that he didn't even have time to eat. And so he gets in the boat with his disciples. The demands of the crowd on him had been great. And uh, it's like he gets to let his hair down with the boys, so to speak. And we get a picture of the humanity of Jesus. He just goes right to sleep. Saw on logs in that boat. I wondered, I'm like, man, I wonder if he was snoring. <laughs> And, you know, the Galilee is, is just this beautiful, beautiful location. The, Galilee, the Lake of Galilee is about 14 kilometers wide. It's about 20 kilometers long. To get a sense of its width, I always use this illustration because it's pretty fair, actually. If you were at the Langdale Ferry Terminal and you're looking across to Lions Bay on the other side, you've got a sense about, of the width of the the Sea of Galilee, except you know, instead of North Shore Mountains, you got the Golan Heights coming up out of, out of the lake. Just these grassy, grassy rolling hills, and uh, the lake can whip up. I mean, we know this. We know this about this lake. It can whip up. It's it can be dangerous for a small vessel to be on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is actually 600 feet below sea level. And the, the Jordan River empties out of it, flows down into the Dead Sea to the lowest point on earth where it's 1,500 feet below sea level. And the whole geography of the valley combined with you know water temperatures and hot Middle Eastern weather, it can just cause this valley to whip with wind and uh, the water can pick up. And that's what happens. 13 men in this boat and, I, you know, I have the feeling that um, there may have been more people in that boat than the Roman or Israel Marine Department had approved, you know, their CSA or whatever. Um, and I have a feeling there probably wasn't enough life jackets for everybody in this boat. But these are not rookie, rookies on the water. These are not noobs. I mean, half of these guys made their living on the Sea of Galilee, and so they were very familiar with these waters, more than capable. But this was not an ordinary storm. In fact, the vessel was filling with water, and they were in danger. Jesus is, yeah, I don't know. Don't think it's sacrilege to say maybe he was snoring, sawing logs, but he's wiped. And uh, he's woken. I imagine it was Peter who did it. Master, master, don't you care that we are going to drown, that we are perishing? And then one of the greatest pictures of Jesus that we see in the gospel accounts takes place. He stands in that boat. He rebukes the the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. They were calm. It's just like amazing. It's just like, it's not like it says it just died down and slowly subsided. It said, no, it was calm. And the language is very specific that this is the same sort of rebuke Jesus used when he was dealing with demonic forces and powers, which actually leads some Bible scholars to say this storm may have been like a demonic, Satan-inspired storm to stop Jesus with what was going to follow here. And so Jesus stands up. He says to the 12, where's your faith? And they said, rightly so, who is this? Who is this that we are in the boat with that he rebukes even the wind and the waves and they obey him? It's a good question. But Jesus demonstrated his, his power over nature. Sleeping one minute, picture of his humanity, controlling nature by his word in the next, a picture of his, of his deity. And Jesus said this, that their problem, the problem in that boat with those men was not the physical threat of the sea. The problem, the greatest danger was their heart of unbelief. Where is your faith? They failed the test of faith. And why did they fail the test of faith? Well, they didn't lay a hold of his word. There's another old saying about faith, that faith is not believing in spite of circumstances. Faith is obeying in spite of feelings and consequences. Let me say that to you again. Faith is not believing in spite of circumstances. Faith is obeying in spite of feelings and in spite of consequences. And the disciples looked around. They focused on the dangers. They looked inside of themselves and uh, let fear get a hold of their hearts. They failed to cling to the words of Jesus and to look to him in faith. And I think the whole key to this story in my mind, uh, the whole key to understanding uh, what what Jesus was doing is what he said as he started out, let us go to the other side of the lake. It's not like this was ever in question that they were going to get there. He said, we're going to the other side of the lake. And because Jesus said it, the outcome was never in question. Now, what happened and what might unfold in the meantime? I mean, no guarantees about how things Might unfold along the way, but safe arrival was never in question because Jesus said, We're going to the other side of the lake. And faith, I think faith looks into the eye of the storm and trusts the Word of God. Trust what Jesus has said, and it can be assured. Don't you love this about our faith? Our faith can be a source of assurance even in the face of physical dangers. And the disciples needed to learn this. If they're gonna turn the world upside down and go and preach Jesus all over, they were gonna face all sorts of physical dangers and they needed to learn this lesson that faith is obedient in spite of physical danger or whatever may come up. Now, verse 26 is this. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, When Jesus had stepped on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Now Matthew's gospel, sometimes people attack this scripture here because they say Matthew's gospel tells us that there was two men. Luke just focuses in on one of them. There's no problem with the scripture. Luke is just emphasizing... One, one person, the one who was extremely demonized, it's uh, quite the picture, no clothes, cruising around naked, kind of a shameful thing. He's living in the cemetery among the tombs, fixated on death. Um, that, that is actually one of the characteristics of demonic activity, of fixation on death. It's focus on death. I, I, I was thinking about this. It was pretty stunning to see what happened uh, south of us in America with the changing of the reversal of Wade versus Roe this week. Praise the Lord for that. And people are upset. They're crazed about it because they're obsessed with death. That's demonic. Jesus is the source of life. He is the author of life. People are crazed and obsessed with with, with death. And Jesus, the scripture tells us, is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the finisher of our faith. He is the source of both physical life and eternal life. To know him, he said, is life. He gives life, physical and eternal. And the devil is obsessed with death. That's what Jesus said. He wants to kill. He wants to steal. He wants to destroy. And Jesus came to give life. Now, verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. And he would break the bonds and be driven by, by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, I, I, I think it's helpful sometimes to look at these stories and, and to point out some things with regards to the activities of, of, of demons and how to recognize demonic activity. And it stands out to me in this verse. One of the things that I notice is just the loud voice with which this man spoke and that Luke points this out and records it. It's like it's not a human voice. Many years ago when um when Lisa and I were dating still, uh we served in the downtown East Side at a mission, I think it was on Tuesday nights, so I forget. It's a long time ago now. And um it was at Pigeon Park and we would, you know, go out on the street and do evangelism and then invite people up into the mission and have a little service and then serve dinner. And uh we had one night out on the street where we were sharing the gospel with this guy and we got you, you know it was like a spiritual attack two people kind of like separated us and it was like really demonic and and um we ended up inside and and chatting with the guy who ran the mission and I'm like, "Well, how do you know?" you know, like how do you recognize demonic activity and how do you know when you're dealing with demonic forces? And he said, well, for me, one of the things that I do to discern is this, is that I, that I speak gently when I'm dealing with someone that's in anger and, and loud like that. Like Proverbs says, he said to me, Proverbs says that you can break a bone with, with a gentle tongue, that a gentle answer turns away wrath. So when you use gentle words in a situation and it doesn't turn wrath away, you might be dealing with something demonic. I remember one time here in my office when I was like new at the church, my office right there, it used to be, you know, before we knocked the wall in the middle, just this tiny little skinny cubicle with one chair and my desk jammed in there. And one day on a summer day like this, I had the door open, I was sitting in my office and all of a sudden there was a dude standing over top of me in the doorway of that office and he was massive and he was clammy, and sweaty, and he looked like something out of a movie, and I thought, I'm about to die. <laughs> and, uh, I thought, what am I dealing with here? And he opened his mouth, and this is wait, this is a true story. He said, I've killed someone. And then he flopped down into the seat in my office, and I'm like, I'm like, ah, oh, what am I doing here? <laughs> Jesus, help me. And, um, You know, as I talked to him, I I discerned that I was not dealing with something demonic. I was dealing with someone in real mental distress, and uh, he was confused. He couldn't hold a proper conversation down, and I realized he was hungry, so we actually got some food, and I built a friendship with this guy. He was living in the marina on a boat, and he hung around for a, a few weeks, and then he disappeared. I don't know whatever happened to him, but, you know, that was one of those moments where I was like, okay, how do I discern here? and gentle words calmed him down interesting too about this this demon possessed man he gives an expression of faith he can he confesses that jesus is the son of god but it's not a saving faith it's not a, it's not a, a, a an expression of faith of belief in the lord jesus it's just an acknowledgement of who jesus is the the demon believed that jesus was the son of god with authority to command him, command these demons, and they immediately begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss. I think that's another sign of demonic activity, the fear, of, uh, the fear and the knowledge, the understanding of a coming future judgment. The demons knew this, that Jesus had the authority to judge them, and not only to judge them, but to cast them into the abyss, which is, uh, in the original language, the deepest depths of Sheol. Uh, Another thing that we're going to read here is the unusual physical, or did we read it already? The unusual physical strength that this person had. Like, he couldn't be subdued. Guards, chains, shackles. Uh, He would break free, and the demonic spirits would drive him into the wilderness. So the demons that possessed him were, were many, because Jesus asked, and he said, our, our name is Legion, and a Roman legion could have like 6,000 soldiers in it. So we're not, I don't know, is it 6,000 demons? I, I, I don't know, but it's many. It is many. Now, here, here's the thing. That side of the lake is known as the Decapolis, where they were, over on that Lion's Bay side of the water. It's known as the Decapolis. It was not a Jewish region. It was a Gentile region. It was Gentile Uh, communities. And we know that because look at verse 32, they were were raising pigs. No respectable, God-fearing Jew, religious Jew is going to be raising pigs. So verse 32, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to, to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. I was like, wow, what a transformation with this man. Like, dressed, clothes on. Yes, that's right, Adam. He's got clothes on. <laughs> he's got clothes on. He's in his, he's in his right mind. And, uh, you know, you, you think that the crowds would see this. The people who came, and they'd say, well, let's go get our sick family members. Let's go get, you know whoever we know that's possessed with demons. But what we read here is they were actually afraid that it was a a terrifying thing to see someone in their right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus. That terrifies the world. The world gets terrified by someone in their right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking him in, taking in his teaching. And they beg Jesus to depart. And the man that was freed from the demons actually begged Jesus that he might go with him. Check out verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now it's just, of course, naturally we understand this guy would want to go with Jesus, all that Jesus has done for him, he didn't want to stick around where he, where he was known, where he had all this history and people knew, oh, that's the guy who lives among the tombs. And yeah, have you seen him run around naked? Yes, I've seen him running around naked. I wish I hadn't. You know, people would say these sorts of things. But Jesus instructed him, no, you're going to stay. I want you to stay and I want you to proclaim uh, what God has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Which is interesting because it's really different advice than Jesus gives most of the time. Like most of the time, over on the other side of the lake, if he was coming back, Langdale side of the lake, okay? Over on the other side of the lake in Galilee, Jesus was always instructing people, stay quiet. Don't tell people. Keep this to yourself. Don't, you know, don't, say what God has done for you. He didn't want Jews who had been healed to say too much. But here in a Gentile region, Jesus gives the instruction, hey, it's safe to share. Go and tell everyone what God has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And we'll talk about this in a minute. But I think of the disciples, okay? They're learning faith. They're learning the secrets of the kingdom. They're learning about faith in the kingdom of God. They are learning that Jesus has power over physical circumstances. They are learning that Jesus has power over Satan. Demonic forces and demonic resistance is not something that should ever knock them off course if they sense they are stepping into the will of Jesus and obediently following Christ. Because greater... Is he than such powers? And you know, maybe they were learning as well that people don't always rejoice when they see someone get in their right mind because they've met Jesus. The world doesn't always rejoice at that. Now let's read on here. Verse, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So back across the lake to the Jewish region. region. Verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus who was ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for he, only had, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So here's Jesus. He's come back to Capernaum. The other gospels tell us that. Uh, the ruler of the synagogue comes to him. This is an important, influential spiritual leader in their community uh, who probably wasn't associating with Jesus very much to this point in time, but now his daughter is ill. She's 12 years old, his only daughter. Can you imagine? Some of you have gone through things like that. It's hard to, it's, it's not hard to imagine really what this father was feeling and how he wanted Jesus to come quickly before she died. And so Jesus went with him, and as he went, the crowd went and they were pressing him. Now, verse 43. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So in this crowd, the people pressing Jesus, we find out here there is a woman, she has an issue of of blood, of bleeding, which she has suffered from for 12 years. So this is crazy. It's like, wait, you have a 12-year-old kid and you've got a a woman who's suffered for 12 years. Their lives have been parallel lives in this community. You know, Jairus' daughter and her, for 12 years, Jairus' house was filled with joy and laughter and pink dresses and Barbie dolls and all the fun stuff that comes with having a little girl. What a blessing. But at the same, that's right, what a blessing, our little girls. And, and then during the same time, there's someone there suffering the whole time in that community, living with suffering. And uh, here's the leader of the synagogue. In fact, this woman, because of this issue of blood, she wouldn't be allowed in the synagogue. She would have been excluded from worship with the people of God. Not, not only that, her, her sickness had left her financially destitute. Her, prob- her husband had probably left her. No source of income. Uh, Those who came into physical contact with her were unclean themselves and would have to go through a purification process, which is amazing that she snuck through this crowd and touched a lot more people than just Jesus. Her life was hard, but she had faith that if she touched Jesus, he would meet her. So verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. This is immediate and complete healing. Then she got a shock, verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. So of course, everybody's touching you, Jesus. What are you talking about? Dozens and dozens of people, if not more, are touching you. But verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. For when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. So again, amazing in the midst of this crowd, all these people touching him, Jesus knows that power goes out from him. Who was it? And it's like, oh, don't you know Jesus? Of course Jesus knew who it was. He, he asked for the benefit of the woman. He asked to cause her to speak forth a testimony to God's glory, to come forward. It wasn't, you know, it was as much for her benefit as it was for the crowd to confess Christ and to glorify God in front of all the people. And I love this, that Jesus gave her a word of assurance and comfort. Jairus had a daughter, but this woman was God's daughter. So just a a beautiful story. Jesus' daughter. It means that that in in the original language, it means daughter of God or uh, one who is acceptable to him, the Father in heaven. And she had suffered for 12 years and she came in faith to Jesus and now she had a testimony of faith. And it's amazing that this whole crowd is pressing on Jesus and And power goes out to just heal this one. And and I I think, wow, well, there was all sorts of other people in that crowd that probably had physical ailments happening. And it's like amazing. You can be part of the crowd and never get a blessing from Jesus. But she did because she approached him in faith. Now, Capernaum was just a small town. Jairus' house wasn't far. But this whole delay slowed everything down. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. So Jesus told Jairus, all you gotta do is keep believing Jairus. Keep on trusting me. Keep on trusting me. Verse 51. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Uh, this is shocking, right? Just how this goes down. I mean, we know in that culture, they did not waste time dealing with dead bodies. I mean, you're in the Middle East, and it's hot. So the mourning begins right away, the grief. And Jesus comes in, he says, don't, don't grieve, don't weep. She's not dead, she's asleep. And, and they laugh at him because the girl was dead. But the beauty of what Jesus is saying is that when someone sleeps, they can be woken up. And of course, this is the way the death of a believer is described in the New Testament. Not that we die, but that we go to sleep. It's the idea to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that when someone sleeps, they can be woken. And those who believe in Jesus will participate in the resurrection of the dead. And the mourners, they didn't know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This was a devastating moment, as we can imagine, for this family. Wasn't a time for laughing, as they laugh at Jesus' words. So he puts the mourners out. And I think this is beautiful. This is really special. This is like, hey, this isn't for people to just, you know watch. This was personal from Jesus. This was a personal, special moment, the tender touch of a Lord on a broken family. Unbelieving mourners who would laugh didn't need to be there to watch. So it's just the parents and Peter, James, and John. This is the first time that Jesus singles out Peter, James, and John. He'd do it other times too, like at his transfiguration, uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane. So verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So child arise, this little girl wake up and her spirit returns. And I love this. Jesus is like, she's been sick. Give her something to eat. She's probably hungry, you know. She hasn't eaten in days. She's been ill for some time. Now she's totally fine. So she's, she's hungry. And then Jesus tells these parents something that's kind of shocking. Don't tell anybody what's happened here. Isn't that crazy? I mean, don't tell them. He tells the demon-possessed man over in the Gerasenes, tell everyone. And in the Galilee, he tells these parents, tell everyone. No one, he's protecting himself with silence amongst the Jewish people. And people just don't understand who he is yet at this point in time. They've got all sorts of preconceptions and misconceptions about the Messiah and what was going to happen and what Jesus was going to do. And if he was the Messiah, and it was just like news is just creeping out and people, his disciples don't even know who he is yet. And Jesus wants to shape The view of of people about who he is. And so he asked the Jewish people to be silent. And I just think this, you know, when we read an account like this in the scripture, you have to be like a child yourself. You know, our Western culture has trained us. Don't be like that. Don't just be believing and trust this beautiful story that we read in Scripture. You know, we're too sophisticated to trust Jesus. And, And those who come to him, they just and just believe him, read a story like this. It's just such a blessing, isn't it? To go, wow. Look at who Jesus is. I don't know at the time, you kind of wonder, like, how did they actually keep it silent? I mean, they didn't keep this silent, what happened? There were people kicked out of the room, but you know, how quickly the story spread, we don't know. But Luke found out from Peter and probably from John. James was gone by the time Luke was on the scene, but these men had seen it with their own eyes. And so here they are, Peter, James, John, I think of the other 12. They're growing as disciples. They're being let in on the secrets of the kingdom. They are seeing firsthand Christ's power. And they were learning that that, that as those who were going to go out and sow the seed of the kingdom on whatever soil it might land, if they found themselves in dangerous situations if they found themselves encountering demonic powers, whether they faced sickness, if they faced death, they just had to keep exercising their faith in Christ and go about the work and they would be blessed for trusting in King Jesus. And I just have one application for you this morning and it's this. Oh, that we would just trust Jesus that we would just trust him. Would you stand with me this morning and invite the worship team to come? So what do you need to trust Jesus for? What do you have going on in your life? Physical danger? Say, wow, is there something demonic happening? You facing death? Disease? Let's ask Jesus to make our hearts childlike, that we would just trust Him in faith in the midst of whatever we have going on. Lord, we come before you this morning. We're thankful for your word, Jesus, because we need you, Lord. And we want to be your disciples, Jesus. We want to learn from you. We want to follow you. We want to be conformed into your image, Jesus. We desire that you would be glorified in our lives and in our church. And, Lord, you use all sorts of ordinary, everyday things in life to test faith. And, Lord, we want to be able to trust our faith. And so, God, we pray that in the midst of whatever test we are facing, that, Lord, you would fill our hearts with childlike faith, that you would help us, Lord, to act in obedience to you and to your word, that, Jesus, um, we would grow in the ability and the skill to just be obedient, Lord. Jesus, we pray that in our lives there would be less and less separation from hearing and doing, but they would melt together in one in our lives that we would trust you at your word. And so Lord, we thank you for these gospel accounts this morning and for the encouragement and strength and lessons we can draw from them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.